On the 18th of May, 1944, the town clerk of Carlow received a letter from England. For Whitehall Court, London SW1. Dear Sir, I am the landlord of a property in Carlow, which I inherited as the great-grandson of the Thomas Gurley, whose monument is in one of your chief churches. It was formerly a considerable property, but it now yields a net revenue of only £150 a year. I propose to hand over the property to the Carlow Municipality for the Common Welfare. And the letter was signed... G. Bernard Shaw. In the course of the letter, Shaw remarked, I am an absentee Irish landlord, having spent, out of the 88 years of my life, only one day in Carlow. But he was an absentee with a difference. Traditionally, as you know, the Irish absentee spent abroad the money his agent had squeezed out of the rack-rented tenants at home. Bernard Shaw reversed this process. He also lectured the town clerk of Carlow on economics. The situation is that Carlow has to send my share of its rent to England, where it is confiscated by the British government to defray the expenses of military operations which include the recent bombing of the Vatican. Carlow clearly loses by this transaction. Shaw had no children to whom he might have left the property. He did, of course, have relations. If I propose to leave the property to some relatives who might, like my grandfather, mortgage it to the last farthing and leave it in a ruinous condition, I could do so without the least trouble. Strange to say, as the law then stood, he found it impossible to leave his property to a municipality for the public benefit. The property was originally the Gurley estate, and Shaw inherited it on becoming the last of the elder branch of the Gurley line. Walter Bagnell Gurley, the Carlos Squire, was my maternal grandfather. In other words, the chap who had mortgaged the property to the last farthing and left it in a ruinous condition. Now, calling him a squire was, I think, stretching things a bit. There were a few Carlos squires, to be sure. Uh, squires, that is, in the dictionary meaning of chief landowner of the neighbourhood. For instance, the Burtons of Burton Hall. Owners of 7,370 acres of land, valuation £5,005. Then the Ducats of Ducats Grove. 11,646 acres, valuation £9,702. The Bruins of Oak Park. 23,627 acres, valuation £17,481. And the Gurleys of no fixed address. 16 acres, valuation £15.15 15 shillings. Walter Bagnall Gurley did, of course, own some houses in and around Carlow, some storehouses which were on the river bank, and a building called the Assembly Rooms. Now, in late 18th century Carlow, people did actually assemble in the Assembly Rooms for a game of cards or a dance. But in the 19th century, there was a sad, sad falling off. Walter Bagnall Gurley's agent writes to him. Dear Sir... You ask me why I cannot rent out the assembly rooms. The reason is, nobody will take them for love or money. Mr Butler used them last week to hold an auction of second-hand furniture, farm carts and used clothing, for which he paid me ten shillings, which I enclose herewith, less my commission, sixpence, postage, one penny, and stamp duty, two pence. In the 1880s, Walter Bagnall Gurley's exuberant and Rabelaisian son, Walter John, told the young Bernard Shaw... The assembly rooms, my boy, 
It would make a grand observatory. You could study the movements of the heavenly bodies through the holes in the roof. And the rest of the girly property was in pretty much the same condition. My girly grandfather's sole notion of procuring money when he was overdrawn, his chronic condition, was to mortgage. Mr. Brian Fitzmaurice, uh, son of the last agent for the Gurley estate, showed me that Gurley monument in the parish church of Carlow Town, St Mary's. The uh, memorial itself says, This monument was erected by Thomas Gurley, Esquire, as an affectionate tribute to the memory of his brother, Bagnall Gurley, Esquire, and to commemorate his many virtues. His friends and acquaintances lament the irreparable loss of his sincere and warm friendship, agreeable and instructive conversation, polite and cheerful manners, liberal yet prudent hospitality, and every social virtue that sweetens and adorns private life. He died on the 25th day of February 1796, in the 25th year of his age. You know, it strikes me that much of what has been said there about Bagnall Gurley could have been said about Shaw himself. It seems to have come down in the family. Yes, I think that could be very true, because uh, uh, Shaw was perhaps that type of man. Mm. Every uh, social virtue that sweetens and adorns private life. Yes, yes, mm. well, that's, that, that could be very true mm. of Shaw. The memorial itself, what is it, five feet high, perhaps? Oh, a little more. Six I'd, feet. I'd, I'd six or seven. Going up into a sort of a, a, an apex. A, a, yes. An apex. That, and at yes. the top there is a, a coat of arms. Well, I'm afraid I'm not very good at reading a coat of arms. But it's, it, it's, uh, the crest would be a bird of some sort with wings splayed out. And then the motto, it's rather hard to see it, but if you like me, use me. And that girly family motto, if you like me, use me, inevitably reminds us of the well-known passage from Shaw's Man and Superman. This is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognised by yourself as a mighty one, the being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Walter Bagnall Gurley's existence was relatively comfortable so long as he could sponge on his father-in-law, who was a very rich Dublin pawnbroker. But then Walter Bagnall Gurley's wife died, leaving two young children, a girl and a boy. The girl grew up to become the mother of Bernard Shaw. The boy was his, as he called him, Rabelaisian Uncle Walter. But that was to be in the future. To come back now to the 1850s, the widower, Walter Bagnall Gurley, took a step which was to saddle his grandson, Bernard Shaw, with aggravating burdens. He most unexpectedly married again. A shotgun marriage, which produced six daughters, meaning six step-aunts for Shaw, and most of them were impecunious. In due course, old Walter Bagnall Gurley died, aged 85, and tough to the very last, Thirteen years later, his son, Walter John, died. Cause of death, diabetes, uremic convulsions. His horse had been sold, his watch pawned, his clothes were disgracefully shabby. The wages of the one servant who had stuck to him through it all had not been paid for seventeen years. His wife had already died in disgust and despair. There were no children, so I inherited the estate. 
Fortunately, Bernard Shaw was financially able to cope. At the age of 42, he had married a County Cork heiress. He got her to take over the mortgages, which amounted to £1,360, and then he paid her off at leisure. For about 15 years, Shaw seems to have used his own money to keep the Carlow property solvent, and he allowed the tenants, who included some of the step-aunts, to put their hands in his pocket whenever they wanted any improvements done. As for the rents, his mother, and later his sister, put these into their pockets. The next one to dip into the Shavian pocket was the County Carlow Technical Instruction Committee and its chairman, the Bishop of Kildare and Lachlan, Dr Foley. Would Shaw give them the assembly rooms for a technical school? To their astonishment, Shaw seemed prepared to hand the rooms over on a plate. The truth is, the assembly rooms have always been a very bad bargain for me. I can neither sell them nor let them at present, and of course I can't use them. I am quite prepared, therefore, to consider an invitation from the Technical Instruction Committee to hand over my title deeds in consideration of the place being used for public purposes, and, if possible, the old front of the building, a façade which belongs to the best period of Irish architecture at the end of the 18th century, retained for the sake of its decorative effect. The bishop and the committee didn't wait for him to change his mind. The rooms were duly transferred to the committee, and Shaw was later invited to attend the official opening. I am sorry I cannot be present at the opening on the 22nd of January, as I shall be on the high seas on that date. But I am afraid I have been too long absent from my native land to be greatly missed. But once again, we've managed to get a little ahead of ourselves in time. Shaw's sister Lucy had died in 1920, but although that made him now the last of the family, he wasn't, as you might think, the unencumbered owner of the Gurley estate at last, for his dear old Irish mother, on her deathbed, had extracted a solemn promise from him. George, promise me you'll always look after your aunts. And look after them he did, to the bitter end. There were six aunts, or more correctly, step-aunts. Aunt Kate. Aunt Arabella. Aunt Georgina. Aunt Charlotte. Aunt Ninny. Aunt Florence. Shaw was infinitely patient with these step-aunts. Some of them were actually younger than he, and most of them looked up to him to be their earthly provider. Financial crisis seemed to be the chronic situation of all these girly girls. The eldest girl, Kate is reputed to have been a keen drinker of furniture polish when her supply of methylated spirits was cut off. She suddenly arrived at the London lodgings of Shaw and his mother in their hardest-up days, and she showed every sign of spending the rest of her life with them, until eventually she had to be exiled to the wilds of County Galway. Shaw was uncharacteristically reticent about his aunts. He bore them with fortitude, or, as a Catholic would put it, he offered them up. For instance, Charlotte Gurley, who married and became Mrs Rogers, she stayed on in Carlow and made it quite clear that Shaw owed her a living. Dear George, my landlady, Miss Kelly, is looking for her house for her own use. I cannot be left without a roof over my head. Could you not put me into the Athai Road house, which, I understand, is becoming vacant? My dear Fitzmaurice, 
Mrs. Rogers has written to me to ask whether she could not be put into Athai Road House, as we pay twenty-two pounds two shillings for her present quarters, and are threatened with a rise. This seems worth considering. If I recollect aright, we never got twenty-two pounds two shillings a year net out of the late tenant. A month later, Mrs. Rogers still wasn't settled. My dear Fitzmaurice, I must apologise for having put you to the trouble of writing twice, but this week I had a play to produce here in London, and attending to rehearsals is incompatible with attending to anything else. Mrs. Rogers' landlady has written again. As the house in the Haymarket seems to be really under-rented, and the rates are only one pound a year, what a jolly place Carlo must be to live in. I don't mind paying them to ease the economic pressure. Mrs. Rogers also sent him various other little bills to settle. Oh, trifles to a rich man, no doubt. But he didn't complain, although he did find it irritating. Another girly aunt was Mrs. Aylward. Dear George, the cistern in my house is leaking something awful. I badly need a new one. My dear Fitzmaurice, may I trouble you to look after Mrs. A's cistern? Dear Mr. Shaw, I have spoken with Mrs. Aylward about her cistern, and I propose to put in a new iron one at a cost of approximately three pounds. But she told me to tell you that a copper cylinder, although more expensive, is a better job and lasts longer. My dear Fitzmaurice, give her the copper cylinder and let us thank God she has not demanded a silver one. Another year passes. Captain Fitzmaurice dies shortly after handing over the agency to his son, Major Fitzmaurice. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, I was prepared for the news of your father's death. When you retire, retire in time, before you have lost the power of adapting yourself to a new phase of life. If you wait until you are worn out, the withdrawal of your daily office habit will kill you like a thunderbolt. I've seen it happen again and again. But now Mrs. Rogers felt it was her turn to turn the screw on shore once again. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, Mrs. Rogers complains that the house she occupies is tumbling down, that she cannot find another, and that the landlady will not do the necessary repairs. Now let's bear in mind that at this period, Shaw was busy writing The Apple Cart, his first play after St. Joan. But with the patience of Job, he devoted precious time to sorting out Mrs. Rogers's problems. The state of the premises, as Mrs. Rogers describes it, seems to me to justify calling in the sanitary inspector so that he may serve a notice to repair a dangerous structure. Mrs. Rogers was still making difficulties and, I suspect, was tying poor Major Fitzmaurice up in knots. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, Mrs. Rogers declares most strenuously that there is not another house to be had in Carlo for love or money. She also says that her rent cannot be raised. Well, Mrs. Rogers evidently knew the landlord and tenant legislation better than Major Fitzmaurice did. If I do the repairs, cannot Mrs. Rogers claim for improvements if her landlady tries to raise the rent on the strength of them? Another year passes. It's now 1930. Shaw, aged 74 has a suite of music dedicated to him by the master of the King's music, Sir Edward Elgar. He toasts Einstein's health in a memorable speech at the Savoy Hotel. 
He receives Mahatma Gandhi at his London home. He brings out a collected edition of his works in 30 volumes and he attends to Mrs. Rogers's demands. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, I wrote to Mrs. Rogers' landlady explaining that I had nothing to do with Mrs. Rogers' proceedings against her and had no power to alter the law if it happened to be on Mrs. Rogers' side. Dear Mr. Shaw, there has been mentioned to me by Mrs. Rogers the possibility that you might buy the cottage for her. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, how much does the landlady want for it? But Mrs. Rogers's landlady refused to sell or to give her a lease, although she couldn't eject her on account of the rent acts. So Shaw spent a few pounds on repairs. Seven or eight pounds, if I remember right. And that was the last I heard of it, until the landlady wrote asking me to stop Mrs. Rogers' attempt to recover this money from her. You see, the astute Mrs. Rogers was obviously intending to put this money in her own pocket. Shaw said nothing. It's now April 1932. While Mrs. Rogers has been planning her next move, another Carlo tenant has a go at Shaw through Major Fitzmaurice. Dear Mr. Shaw, Mr. Fenton, who occupies the John Street house, wants a rebase in his rent because of the flooding by the River Barrow. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, is it impossible to embank the river against the floods? Has the Carlow municipality been urged to take the job in hand as a piece of public work? Has any municipal councillor proposed to make a complete embankment and defray the cost by levying a special rate on all the riparian proprietors? That is obviously the proper remedy. Shaw pointed out that Mr Fenton should have insured himself against the risk of floods. If he did, there is no reason why I should pay too. If he did not insure, there's no harm in asking him. Why not? Dear Mr Shaw, Mr Fenton informs me that his son is also ill. His son's illness has nothing to do with the matter. He does not pay me rent for his son or have I covenanted to supply him with a son in sound health? But in this case, as in every other, Shaw did not stand on his rights. I presume I have covenanted to supply him with a piece of ground above water, and the river barrow has prevented me from fulfilling my obligation in that respect. So I leave it to your judgment to make him a reasonable allowance, say up to half a year's rent. Word of Shaw's generosity must have been getting around, Carlo. A Mrs MacDonald began to complain that her rent was excessive and that she, too, was a victim of the River Barrow. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, the Barrow is not always in flood. Would not a temporary abatement meet the case? I cannot afford to let the whole estate become an almshouse. You must not forget that I have just turned 83 1941. The war is beginning to hot up. On the 28th of April, Shaw and Gilbert Murray have written to the London Times pleading for an arrangement with the Germans whereby the bombing of cities should be renounced. Among the letters Shaw receives is... Dear Mr Shaw, Mrs Rogers has asked me to pay her fuel bill. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, as the lady always asks me to pay her fuel bill, you may regard it between ourselves as a standing order. The same applies to hospital and medical fees, but this also must be between ourselves, for if I am known to be backing the bills, they will eat up the entire property. I know this by experience. 
As Shaw had already mentioned, he had turned 83. Now, it isn't given to every man of 83 to have an aunt still alive and still demanding. But Mrs Rogers was still there and still demanding. However, cancer had gripped her, and in her 79th year she was walking in the valley of the shadow of death. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, I'm afraid the patient has given you a good deal of trouble, but these things are in the course of nature and cannot be avoided. I am indebted to you for taking them off my hands in this instance, but I must see my mother's half-sisters through. I promised her to. So please take carte blanche as to the cost of the illness. If the war lasts much longer, I shall be ruined. The taxation is compelling me to live on my capital. I may yet end my days in Carlo, in Grave Lane. Always yours, G. Bernard Shaw. Telegram to Bernard Shaw, 25th of November, 1941. Regret to state Mrs. Rogers died Monday. Georgie, her daughter, was with her. Am making arrangements. Signed, Fitzmaurice. Telegram to Major Fitzmaurice. Please charge all expenses to me, including daughter's incidentals. You've been very kind in this matter. Many thanks. Bernard Shaw. Sister Mary Agnes Kelly of the County Home Hospital, Barrack Street, Carlow, now enters the correspondence. Dear Mr Shaw, Pardon my intrusion, but this letter is going to you in fulfilment of a promise asked from me by Mrs Rogers on her death yesterday evening. She was given into my care some four weeks ago. Poor soul, she was brought here by Archdeacon Ridgeway, accompanied by her daughter. She was extremely ill, physically and mentally, the latter condition due to pain and distress caused by her sad condition. She had carcinoma of the vagina, and it was only by giving her constantly sedatives and narcotics that we were able to keep her out of dreadful agony. She was a grand old soul, a perfect lady, and so grateful for any attention given to her. She had a lovely ward to herself, and Archdeacon Ridgway was most attentive. She asked to have her daughter Georgie with her when dying, and last evening Georgie saw her mother pass from this world of exile to her eternal home. She had asked me to have some white flowers placed on her coffin. Accordingly, I sent a beautiful bunch of white chrysanthemums. And her last request, this letter. I am to convey to you her gratitude and tell you she had every care and attention in her illness. She would like the dear old people here in the county home to have a wireless, and asked me to say to you, if you thought well of it, give the matter sympathetic consideration. I would not mention the matter, only that Mrs. Rogers left it as a duty to me to carry out her dying requests. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, can you pick up a respectable instrument for them in Carlo? I can do nothing here under the war regulations. Dear Mr Shaw, I suggest a pie radio. The cost would be about seventeen pounds four shillings and tenpence. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, the pie is a good instrument. I use one myself. 
but a battery set would be money wasted. The trouble and expense of getting the batteries recharged would soon be too much bother for the staff, and the set would be pushed out of sight and forgotten. They must get one that will plug into the wall switches. Mrs Rogers left other bequests to Shaw, including Michael Murphy of 2 John Street, Carlow. 4th December 1941. Dear Sir, I suppose you are already apprised of the death of poor Mrs Rogers of Haymarket. I am writing to you as a friend of hers, as she left me in the house which the landlord has stripped and is now threatening me with an eviction. I am writing to know if you could do something for me in the circumstances. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, give him anything you think he ought to have to help him to clear out, if he deserves it. Four months later, Major Fitzmaurice was still tying up loose ends in connection with Mrs Rogers' death. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, pay Miss Brennan what she asks. It would cost more to investigate, and there is no reason to doubt her claim. And now, a pleasant change. In October 1943, a Mrs Dunny, who lived in the John Street house, found that her lease from Shaw had run out. Dear Mr Shaw, I would be willing to take on the house on a yearly tenancy and pay £20 a year rent. Well, Shaw was rather bowled over to discover that he had at least one Carlo tenant who was not only willing to pay an economic rent, but who had kept the house in good repair at her own expense, according to the terms of her agreement. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, we should simply let her stay on, with the additional inducement that we put a roof in sound repair and undertake the exterior repairs in future. Which was more than she asked for and probably more than she expected. It is not good policy to make tenants do structural repairs, unless they have bigger incomes than are common in Carlo, for they neglect them too long and patch up the damage as cheaply as possible instead of making a sound job of it in good time. And the estate deteriorates. Accordingly. But there were the other tenants. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, is there any chance of getting rid of the lady in Grave Lane who never pays her rent? I still think it would be desirable to knock down that house and clear the site for a new building. In September 1943, Shaw's wife died, leaving her estate of £100,000 to finance a scheme to make culture more widely available to the Irish people. The problem of what to do with my Irish property is not an easy one. To leave it to my next of kin would only throw it back into the mischief and misery it caused among them before it came to me. To add it to my English bequests would be to perpetuate my absenteeism and tax Carlo for the benefit of, say, Birmingham. What I think of doing is leaving it to Carlo earmarked as a municipal amenity and improvement fund, not to be used for the reduction of the rates or the endowment of schools, but for purposes ranging from the embankment of the barrow to the maintenance of a municipal band. In short, to let the whole property go the way of the old assembly rooms. Well, now, Major Fitzmaurice was too polite to point out the difficulty of such projects as embanking the river barrow building roads, concert halls and picture galleries out of an annual income from the estate of £150. 
Meanwhile, Shaw was having second thoughts about what the money should be devoted to. Libraries are being looked after by the Carnegie Trust. Picture galleries will be supplanted by television. You will have programmes of pictures from the great national galleries broadcast as orchestral concerts are now. There are certain conditions that I want to make. I want it to be unsectarian. Ah, unsectarian. You see, having been bred a southern Irish Protestant, Shaw was acutely aware of the danger of that tiny minority of the population being swamped by the Catholic majority. As things are in error, the Catholics will command everything that is not specifically left to the Protestants, if such distinction is left possible. He was now 88 years of age. If I could live another 88 years, I should knock down every house on the property and replace it with a new one with a garage and a modern kitchen with all the latest labour-saving contrivances and conditioned air to teach the Karlovians to want such things and not live in what are only superior cow-houses. But Fitzmaurice, who had a fairly good idea of the amount of civic spirit in Carlo, tried to dissuade him. Dear Major Fitzmaurice, I am not altogether convinced. Civic spirit can be created by example and propaganda and it is not wholly non-existent. For Carlo owes its band, its fire brigade, and its electricity to the initiative of individual citizens who could have found safer investments. I believe people would give or bequeath money to a betterment fund if there were any such fund well advertised to give it to. Of course, no solicitor would advise his client to make such a will as my wife's or the one I contemplate. But what I want is not such advice, but suggestions as to how the thing could be done, however ill-advised the thing might be. Fitzmaurice, almost in desperation, suggested bequeathing the estate to the hospitals. I would rather throw it into the barrow. Our system of leaving what should be public service to live by cadging private charity is abhorrent to me. And I want to keep people out of hospitals, not to crowd them in. Shaw now considered roping in further assistance. I have half a mind to tackle Mr de Valera about it, although he has not been very civil to me of late. They had fallen out over the question of Irish neutrality, and Dev had been rather curt. Nevertheless... Dear Taoiseach, is it possible to pass an act enabling every... Irish municipality to establish and administer a voluntary civic improvement fund open to all citizens who have property which they desire to give or bequeath to the country instead of to the next of kin, who, like the relatives from whom I inherited my own Irish property, may exploit, mortgage and ruin it and demoralise themselves in the process. My late wife, who was devoted to you, holding you to be the greatest living Irishman, except one, made a will leaving all her property to an Irish bank for the development of Irish culture. Her solicitors, like the Carlo solicitors, assured her that this was the only legal way of carrying out her intention. I'm afraid it will prove a legal way of very largely defeating it. And how right Bernard Shaw was... I shall certainly not adopt it myself. Only by making it an affair of state quite impersonal to myself can I justify my calling your attention to it. 14th of May, 1945. Dear Mr Shaw, 
I have received your letter, and I am having your question examined. I shall write to you again later. Yours faithfully, Yamun de Valera. Deb sent word to the Minister for Local Government, who was then Sean McEntee. The Taoiseach desires that consideration be given the question of introducing legislation on the lines indicated by Mr Shaw. Sean McEntee promptly put the wheels in motion and Shaw was notified that the required legislation was about to pass and all had been done within one month to the day after Shaw had first written to Dev. Dear Taoiseach, Splendid! It would have taken 30 years to get so far in this unhappy country, England. Many, many thanks! With Dev having acted with the speed of light, even the Carlo Urban Council was moved to hustle itself. But the Council now made a terrifying discovery. They'd either forgotten to pass a formal resolution about accepting Shaw's gift, or else had forgotten to put it in the minutes. The Council's solicitor drafted a bit of bland waffle that got them off this particular hook. Now, the Council officials had to work not only under Deb's shadow, but under the eagle eye of the 89-year-old Shaw, who instructed his Carlo solicitors... The last sentence of Clause 15 stipulates that the plot called the graves shall not be used otherwise than as a burial ground. I object violently to this. One of my uncles was secretary of Mount Jerram Cemetery, and what I learned there behind the scenes gave me a horror of earth burial which has made me a strong advocate of cremation. If the plot cannot be deconsecrated and the name of Grave Lane changed, then I hope it will be occupied by a municipal crematorium when the Catholic Church lifts its ban on that method of preventing the dead from crowding out the living in Ireland. Meanwhile, the Protestants should have incineration available. Now that the giant task of transferring the property to the Carlo Urban Council seemed to be drawing to its close, the ever-thoughtful Shaw didn't forget the labours of the loyal and patient Major Fitzmaurice. He sent him a tactful gift of a hundred guineas, which, being a gift, was, of course, not liable for income tax. Dear Mr Shaw, one hundred guineas strikes me as being most handsome on your part. Thank you very much indeed for such a liberal present. It has always been a pleasure to look after your interests to the best of my ability, and you are always such an understanding and liberal man to deal with. The fourth-generation Fitzmaurice, who was connected with the Shaw estate in Carlo, Arthur William Revel Brian Fitzmaurice, still lives in the town, but he's no longer in the land agency business. Yes, I got out of it when my father died in 1975, uh, I sold the business shortly after he died, and um, that brought it to a close. But it had been going on for very many years. Well, very, very <clears> fortunately, <throat> although you dispersed a lot of the business papers connected with the land agency, you did keep the Shaw correspondence. Yes, I always kept that because, well, he was rather a famous uh, Irishman, and I had an indirect connection with him, and George Bernard Shaw is known all over the world by name and for his plays, and for in indeed for himself. And I kept his uh, correspondence, or as much as I could find of it. When I closed the office uh, in 1975, September 1975, uh, I went through all papers. Some had to be kept, some were useless. But when I came to the Shaw papers, I kept what I could find. And I brought them home to my residence, and they're still there today. They are, I would say, uh, amongst the most unusual business letters ever written by a landlord to his agent. 
Well, they probably were because um, he was an amazing man and some of the things he would say in his letters couldn't exactly be published for reading by the public. It was rather a, a man-to-man thing. And very often my father would get a letter from Shaw and he'd say, well, now, how do I interpret that for the person concerned, a tenant or a banker or accountant or whatever it might be? But there was an odd thing about Shaw. <coughs> his bark was much worse than his bite. Yes, I think I would agree with that. Uh, but he was, he was a very kind person um, uh, in, when, when dealing with his, his tenants. He was probably a fairly wealthy man and perhaps he could afford to be kind, but he was. But, uh, he, I said, think, he said that he spent one day on his property in Ireland, one day in Carlo. Yes, he spent one day many, many years ago. Oh, I don't know, how, I don't know what year I'm talking about. And he came up to Kelvin Grove, which are my grandfather's <coughs> and my father's uh, home at the time. And I think he was a vegetarian, wasn't he? And my grandmother was at her wit's end to know what to give him because he wouldn't have beef or mutton or whatever. So anyway, she decided on macaroni or, or something of that sort, and the old boy was delighted. But I don't know how long ago that was. And there's another, there's another story, as we're chatting about this, there's another story that from, um, I can't remember the name of the... Well, he was a caretaker to what was then the, uh, the technical school in Dublin Street. His name was Moore, somebody Moore. And on this particular day, my grandfather brought Shaw down to look at some of the property. And this old boy, Moore, can't remember his Christian name, uh, was lying in bed. And my father dug him, my grandfather dug him out and said, uh, come and meet your landlord. And old Mr. Moore opened one eye and he looked up at Shaw and he said, ah, my man of destiny. Which, am I right in saying, was one of Shaw's plays? Yes. Well, so the old boy is quick enough, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and he certainly knew where to tickle Shaw. Because he did, yes. He showed a very high regard uh, for The Man of Destiny as a play. Yes. He also had a very high regard for the property. Yes. He thought it was perhaps of more importance than it actually was. Uh, was the property very important? No. Uh, well, importance... Uh, from the financial side, no. Uh, we just looked after the uh, the rental property. Well, it was all that he had in Carlo was rental property. There was no land attached to it. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember now offhand... Uh, well, this is he died in 1950. This is 1984. I can't remember what the, um, the rental was. I mean, the total incoming rent and then the expenses and one from the other would be the balance in hands at the end of the account. I, it, it wasn't a great deal, perhaps a couple of hundred pounds, not more. As far as the property itself is concerned, they were all uh, good um, premises. They were good houses. Some were private houses, some were business premises. They were all in, in, kept in pretty good order. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the, the smaller parts of the property would have been perhaps uh, weekly or monthly tenancies. Uh, and some of them were leasehold for perhaps 99 years, more, less. I can't really remember. It's a long time ago now. Today, 40 years after Shaw's gift to Carlo, the income is about £800, but this is chiefly the result of inflation. However, how has Shaw's idea of a voluntary civic improvement fund worked out? The view of the solicitor to the Carlo Urban Council, Frank Lanigan, is... Well, he's left the legal people for whom I gather he did not have any great time, with a conundrum with his, which I would call suitably shavian. And this means that if you're going to try to solve this conundrum, 
uh, all the virtually all the uh, trust fund trust income and the accumulated trust fund is going into legal fees uh, I would like to think so but that is not in fact the case what has happened is that up until 1973 the proceeds of the fund about £800 a year went to uh, local artistic endeavours such as the theatre and the arts but unfortunately the Arts Act of 1973 resulted in such work being undertaken by the Urban Council which meant that it was the obligation of the council to provide this and it was the obligation of the ratepayers to provide rates for it. Accordingly, artistic endeavour became levyable on the rates and it was no longer possible to provide the Shaw Fund for this purpose. In effect, there is some overlapping uh, between the council's rate financing activities and Shaw's Civic Improvement Trust. Yes, in fact, it makes it very difficult to find work to be carried out by the urban district of Carlo, which is not now subject to the relief of rates. In fact, uh, we have explored the possibility and we would propose to apply to the commissioners for charitable donations and bequests to have the words for the relief of rates removed from the Shaw Fund so that the monies can be provided for the benefit of the civic improvement of the town of Carlow. Otherwise, it's got into such a state of conundrum that it is almost impossible to administer. I now put the question bluntly to Carlow's town clerk, Phil Sharkey. Did he wish, in his heart of hearts, that Shaw had never left his property to Carlow? Well, there are times uh, when one would wonder whether it was a good idea, um, particularly when one considers the amount of money that was involved at the time. Originally, it was only £150. And at that stage, it may have been worth something. And there were a lot of things that councils couldn't do in those days that they can do now. So when you come now to looking at the, the value of the property and the income from the property, more particularly the income from the property, it's not all that valuable as such, particularly in view of the fact that local authorities have had much more extensive powers to spend money. Consequently, we find at the present time that we cannot use the money in the Shaw Fund for any purpose at all. How much money is involved nowadays? You're talking in terms nowadays uh, of about somewhere between six and eight hundred pounds a year. Well, as you remember, uh, Shaw wanted the income for the property used for a civic improvements fund. That's correct, yes. Now, do you think that you can do much civic improvement on eight hundred pounds a year nowadays? Very little, very little. Most of the money is used for the purpose of either maintaining the existing property, uh, Shaw's existing property, uh, or providing things like the crib at Christmas, which we don't have a specific statutory authority to do, presenting addresses of welcome to dignitaries who tend to attend the town, you know, people like Lord Mayor's from other places and that kind of thing. And that basically is what the money is used for at the present time.